Welcome to Sundays with Montrose Bible Church. We're glad you tuned in as Pastor Matt leads us in a study of God's Word. This morning we continue our sermon series from the book of Matthew as Christ expands his teaching about the little ones who believe. In response to the disciples' question about greatness, Jesus stressed the need for his followers to be humble, like the child that he had just placed on his lap. Then he warned the twelve about the terrible judgment that they would face should they cause a child in the faith to stumble. And now, as he presses the illustration of the little one even further, he explains their value from God's perspective and how they should be regarded by those more spiritually mature. Turn with me, if you will, to Matthew chapter 18, and follow along as we read God's word together, beginning in verse 10. Matthew chapter 18 Verse 10, see that you do not despise one of these little ones. For I say to you that their angels in heaven continually see the face of my father who is in heaven. For the son of man has come to save that which was lost. What do you think? If any man has a hundred sheep and one of them has gone astray, Does he not leave the 99 on the mountains and go and search for the one that is straying? If it turns out that he finds it, truly I say to you, he rejoices over it more than over the 99 which have not gone astray. So it is not the will of your Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones perish. May God bless the reading of his word. Surely, those of you who have been in and around Christendom for any period of time have heard this parable before. This parable of the lost sheep is one of the most recognizable of all the teachings of Jesus, even among the unredeemed. We've read it in our storybooks, taught it in our Sunday schools, heard it preached a hundred or more times. But in Almost every one of those retellings, with rare exception, every single one, recounts the parable as it is presented, not in the Gospel of Matthew, but in the Gospel of Luke. That's right, a parable very similar to this one about the retrieval of a lost sheep is also found in Luke chapter 15, verses 1 through seven. And because we've heard that text explained ad infinitum, we assume an understanding of this text. But as similar as these stories may appear, their intent and application are vastly different. And unless we take the time to appreciate those distinctions, We are at risk of missing out on what Jesus is saying here to the twelve. And so for the sake of clarity, for the sake of accuracy, for the sake of 
right interpretation of God's Word, we have to begin our exposition of Matthew's lost sheep by reading its counterpart in Luke. There, we're told about all the tax collectors and the sinners that were coming near Jesus to listen to him. Both the Pharisees and the scribes began to grumble, saying, this man receives sinners and eats with them. So Jesus told them this parable, saying, what man among you, if he has a hundred sheep and has lost one of them, does not leave the 99 in the open pasture and go after the one which is lost until he finds it? When he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep which was lost. I tell you that in the same way, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. Now again, on the surface... The account we just read and the one found in Matthew 18 are strikingly similar. And so, all of this time, you've probably considered them one and the same. But there are at least three major differences that affect their meaning. The first of those differences is the teaching's context. In Luke... The parable is addressed to Pharisees and other teachers of the law in defense of Jesus' attitude toward tax collectors and sinners who are decidedly outside of the faith. In Matthew, the parable is addressed to the apostles to show them how little ones in the faith should be treated. Similar story, sure, but a very different context. And the same is true of their word choice. When closely compared in the Greek text, you find that almost every relevant term in the parable is different. Take the state of the sheep itself as the most obvious example. In Luke, the sheep are said to be lost. Three times, in fact, we see that word, apalomi, telling us that the sheep in Luke's story are lost, destroyed, ruined, and ready to be put to death. That's the spiritual condition that Jesus was describing when he shared this parable in Luke's gospel. But that word doesn't make a single appearance when related to the apostles in Matthew. Now, in his version, the sheep are not lost on the verge of destruction. They have gone astray. From the very different Greek word, planao, describing a temporary waywardness or a wandering from where they should rightly be. Friends, there's a huge theological difference between the one state and the other. We recognize that in the context, in the word choice, and in the contrast that's spelled out so clearly in Luke's accounting 
but not even mentioned in the book of Matthew. When Jesus says in Luke chapter 15, verse 7, that there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance, he's talking about two very different categories of people. The one unredeemed sinner and the 99 already redeemed sheep. But there is no such contrast of groups or conditions or spiritual states of salvation made when Jesus shares the parable with the apostles in Matthew. Because in that version, the one we have before us this morning, all 100 sheep believe. All 100 sheep are saved. All 100 sheep are already part of God's flock. That makes this a completely different teaching than the one we've heard over and over again during our Christian upbringing. This is not about God's heart for the unredeemed. That he would seek and save those who are lost. It's not about that. This is about God's heart for the impressionable, at-risk, and oftentimes wayward new believer who God promises to restore because they are among the elect. Do you see the incredible difference? Now, of course... Arriving at that understanding is not without its challenges. And not only do we have to put away the predispositions of our childhood, not only do we have to do this work of analytic comparison, we also have to ignore a misplaced and misappropriated verse found in our English Bibles. As I was reading from the 1995 New American Standard Translation, you heard me recite a verse 11 in between verses 10 and 12 because typically that's how numbers are supposed to work. But not in this case. Not in this text. You see, in the 1995 New American Standard Translation, verse 11 is found in brackets. Because verse 11 was not part of Matthew's original account. No, this saying, the Son of Man has come to save that which was lost, is not found in the best and earliest manuscripts of this gospel. Now, to be fair, it was a legitimate saying of Jesus. It's recorded in Luke chapter 19, verse 10. So it does teach a genuine scriptural truth. But accurate as it may be, that truth doesn't belong here. It was probably picked up from Luke by a well-meaning scribe, clerk, or copyist who added it to the book of Matthew after the fact at what they believed was an appropriate place. But it's not an appropriate place. Because as we have just come to realize, this 
parable of the sheep is not about seeking and saving those who are lost. It's about caring for and keeping those who have gone wayward. Surely that is why in the NIV, the CSV, the ESV, and the RSV, this phrase is omitted in its entirety. Moving right from verse 10 to 12, as Matthew had originally intended. So, if we can be rid of all of our misconceptions, all of those distractions, all of those erroneous insertions, then we can actually begin to consider what Jesus was trying to communicate to his apostles when speaking to them in Matthew chapter 18. First, he tells them that these little ones who believe are precious in the sight of God. Take a look back at verse 10 of our text. There Jesus says, See that you do not despise one of these little ones. For I say to you that their angels in heaven continually see the face of my Father who is in heaven. Now, you have to remember that Jesus is still speaking with a child on his lap. Set forth as an example, an illustration, an object lesson of sorts. But as we realized last week, it is not the child's stature that he is highlighting. It's not the child's age. No, he's talking about those who are newly converted and easily influenced because they have not reached full maturity in the faith. That's how Jesus referred to them earlier in this same chapter. He calls them the little ones who believe. Leaving no doubt as to their actual conversion but at the same time acknowledging the ease with which they might be led astray. That's who we have in view here. And while it was the tendency of the Jewish religious leaders to cast down upon them, make light of them, ignore those of lesser spiritual maturity, that must not be the approach of Christ's apostles. Instead, Jesus tells them not to despise any of these little ones because they have a host of heavenly angels advocating on their behalf in the throne room of Almighty God. Now, this statement about angels seeing the face of the Father would have immediately struck a chord with Matthew's Jewish audience. Among the Jews of that day, there was a highly developed sense of angelology, the likes of which stretches most believers in this country far beyond their place of comfort. That's right. When it comes to the study of angels and the like, most of us would disregard their ministry altogether because talk of the supernatural is uncomfortable indeed. Now, that may be so, friends. But from beginning to end, 
The Christian faith is anchored and rooted in the context of the supernatural. As R.C. Sproul once said, to take away the supernatural is to eviscerate. That is to take the guts right out of our faith. Surely angels exist. Surely angels are operational. Surely angels are actively engaged in seeing the will of God accomplished on earth as it is in heaven. And here is one of their ongoing ministries. To consider, care for, and take up the cause of the new believer who is struggling in his or her faith. Is that so hard for us to believe? That the holy angels would aid the wandering soul in their battle against the spiritual forces of wickedness that are fought where? In the heavenly places? Of course, this is what the angels are doing as they set their face upon and take direction from God himself. All throughout Scripture, we see them engaged in that ministry of care and concern. In the book of Daniel, angels advocate for certain nations. In Revelation, angels are attending to certain churches. Here, angels are advocating for certain people. Those little ones who believe. In fact, as the writer of Hebrews goes on to explain... Holy angels are all ministering spirits sent out to render service for the sake of those who will inherit salvation. Their purpose is to serve God by attending to the care of his people. Maybe not in that one-for-one guardian angel type relationship that we've all become accustomed to talking about. But surely they are doing this in the collective. These angels abide in the very presence of God, never taking their eyes off of God while they wait attentively for his commands to serve the people. And if the angels are engaged on that level, if the angels are working that tirelessly for the benefit of the struggling convert. Why would you ignore the struggling convert? Why would you despise them? How could you turn your back on their plight? As John MacArthur has said, the fact that Almighty God is so concerned about the care of his beloved children, that he has a host of angels in his presence ready to be dispatched to their aid, demonstrates how valuable these believers are and how unthinkably wicked it is to look with disdain on someone whom God prizes so highly. Are you there? As Jesus works the 12 through this very pointed Teaching. 
he assures them that these little ones who believe are precious in the sight of God. And that God is deeply concerned as to their whereabouts. Take a look back at verse 12. What do you think? Jesus asked them. If any man has a hundred sheep and one of them has gone astray, does he not leave the 99 on the mountains and go and search for the one that is straying? Now, all throughout Scripture, we find reference to sheep and shepherds because in the agrarian societies of the ancient Near East, their interactions were well understood. On the whole, sheep are not overly intelligent creatures. They're easily distracted, prone to wander, susceptible to danger, and when left on their own, sure to find trouble. In the rolling hills of the Judean wilderness, it was fairly standard for a sheep to stray from the fold during the day and become separated from the flock at night. And when the shepherd put the sheep in the coat for their rest time and counted heads to ensure their number, he was then made to realize that one or more had in fact gone astray. Now, on the one hand, you say, that's not really that big a deal. In most other vocations, a 99% retention rate is pretty good. And we might be tempted to let the one be taken. So long as the rest of the flock remains. After all, that would be easier for us. And it would be a lot less frustrating. We might be tempted to let it go. But not the good shepherd. Not the living God. No, he has placed too high a value on that little one who believes to lose it, to release it or let it come to irreparable harm. So like the shepherd who is responsible for ensuring the safety and security of the entire flock, the Lord promises to go after and stay after the wayward until they return to the sheepfold once more. Now, of course, we are not talking about those who have only purported to be part of God's flock. We're not talking about those who have tasted and seen, but have gone into full-fledged apostasy. No, those are not part of this hundred because they have not been truly converted and are not little ones who actually believe. Now, we're not talking about apostates here. We're talking about those who, because of the newness of their faith, have been unduly influenced by the ungodly for a time. Those who, because of their lack of discernment, have been led astray by false teaching. Those who, because of their immaturity, have become too entangled in the world's affairs. They're saved as part of God's choice and elect company. 
but they have temporarily lost their way. How does God view them? How are we to approach them? What would the Lord have us say? Well, based on the authority of Scripture, we would look at that new believer, that wayward child, that struggling saint, and we would tell them that God sees them and God loves them, but God needs them to return to the fold. Because like the sheep of Matthew's parable, they're not where God wants them to be. Maybe that's you here this morning. Maybe you're in a season of wandering. Maybe you feel separated from the flock. Maybe you find yourself in a time of trouble. Well, friend, God sees you. And God loves you. But God needs you to return to the fold. Because if you are wandering into ungodliness, you are not where God wants you to be. These little ones who believe are precious in the sight of God. He is deeply concerned as to their whereabouts. And as Jesus assures us in verse 13, he rejoices with great joy when the straying return. If any man has a hundred sheep and one of them has gone astray, does he not leave the 99 on the mountain and go and search for the one that is straying? If it turns out that he finds it, truly I say to you, he rejoices over it more than over the 99 which have not gone astray. Now, all throughout this teaching, Jesus has drawn upon the Old Testament imagery of God's people as both secure sheep and those sheep who stray. Our tendency, like that of the Jewish rabbis, is to focus exclusively on those who have remained steadfastly, dutifully and consistently inside the confines of the pen. Saying what they're supposed to say, doing what they're supposed to do, proving by their attitudes and their actions that they are a rightful part of God's flock. We want people to be in that place so badly that we neglect at times our responsibility to the wayward ones that were such a huge part of Christ's ministry on earth. Friends, we need to realize that God delights at their return as much or more than he does in the faithfulness of the spiritually mature. That's the measure of concern that he has for believers who stray. He values them that highly. And if God values them that highly, 
so too should we. We should care enough to retrieve them, restore them, and rejoice over them when, by the grace of God, the wayward return. Yeah? These little ones who believe are precious in the sight of God. He's deeply concerned as to their whereabouts, and he rejoices with great joy when the straying return. For as we are told in verse 14, it is not the will of God that any of these little ones who believe would ever perish. That's how Jesus sums up this teaching to the apostles. He says, in regard to these new believers, it is not the will of your Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones perish. Now, you have to understand, the Bible speaks of God's will in at least three different ways. First, there is God's preceptive will. That will that he states in his commands. At the giving of the law, for example, he made it clear his will was that none of his people would ever worship an idol. Of course, we know that will can and oftentimes is violated by human beings, but it is God's will nonetheless. And there is also God's sovereign or decretive will. Those things that he decrees with certainty and are therefore guaranteed to come to pass. When God said, let there be light, for example, there was no choice, no debate, no option on the part of the light for defiance. God decreed it, so it was so. Each and every time that he gives such an utterance. And then there is the preferential will of God, sometimes called God's will of disposition. In Ezekiel chapter 33, verse 11, we're told that God takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked. It tells us he has no desire to see men in hell, nor takes any sadistic satisfaction in sending them there. Of course, he does send them there because he also wills justice. But he does so with many tears. These are the three main ways that Scripture speaks about God's will. So which one is this? Being recited in Matthew chapter 18, verse 14, when Jesus tells us, it is not the will of your Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones perish. Well, if we take this only as a general statement that cuts across all categories of people, then we might conclude this assertion of God's will is little more than a statement of his preference. As though God were saying, many sheep are going to perish. I just wish it wasn't so. We see that in a number of other places. Like in Luke's evangelistic version of this parable. And there may be some element of that here. But in Matthew's retelling, in this 
context, we can do far better than mere preference or disposition. Being that the subject matter of Jesus' parable in Matthew is the little ones who actually, verifiably do believe in Christ. Well, this statement then stands as an absolute sovereign decree of the living God. Because, friends, if you are actually among the regenerates, counted as a member of God's flock, then no matter your waywardness or your wandering, he will always, always return you back to the fold. Even if it feels dark and desperate in the moment, God will not leave you out there distracted and caught up forever. He will bring you back. For I am confident of this very thing, Paul writes to the Philippians, that he who began a good work in you will most certainly perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. My sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me, Jesus said in John chapter 10. I give eternal life to them and they will never perish. And no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. After all, if you're truly a sheep of his pasture, then you have been bought with a price. And our Savior makes no unwise investment. Huh? He's not about to let you stray beyond his reach after giving so much of himself for your purchase. No, he will find you. He will turn you. And he will bring you back to the praise of his glorious grace. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we are humbled. Humbled to think that you have set your favor in our direction and it's a favor that does not fade away. It's not lost. You don't lose sight of us just because we wander. We are so eternally grateful for your care and your keeping concern of our lives. Oh Lord, without that, we are 
we're gone. And we're hopeless. And we will forever be lost beyond recover. But at just the right time, Lord, you sent the good shepherd that all those who are elect would remain so forever and ever in your presence. Thank you, Father. Thank you. And Lord, I pray every day more and more we would remain among the steadfast and the faithful and cause you less worry by wandering away. Lord, keep us rooted and grounded. Show us discernment. Lord, give us maturity in the faith that we would stay more deeply rooted in you and would know less of this waywardness that we've spoken of this morning. Lord, thank you for never letting go. May we turn back to you more and more every day of our lives. We pray these things in the name of your Son, Jesus, who makes it all possible. Amen and amen. We trust you were challenged by the word of the Lord and invite you to join us again if you'd like to learn more about our ministry in Montrose or want to connect with Pastor Matt. Come worship with us at 930 every Sunday along Lake Avenue. 